0: This podcast is sponsored by our partner, QXMD. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based medicine and clinical practice. Check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you, and CALCULATE for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that's qxmd.com slash apps. Welcome to the Critical Care Obstetrics podcast. My name is Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics, and I'm here with my partner, Suzanne McMurtry-Baird, Nursing Director for Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. Today, we're talking with Amber, a certified nurse midwife practicing in the Midwest. She's got a master's degree in nursing from Marquette University and is the mother of two-year-old twins. She's here today to talk to us about her harrowing birth story, during which she became critically ill with acute fatty liver of pregnancy and survived to tell the story. Amber has a pretty unique perspective as a midwife and as a critically ill obstetric patient. Amber, welcome to the podcast and thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you. We're thrilled to have you with us. I'm so glad you reached out. We. You know, we interact with a lot of folks all over the country and uh, hear some pretty amazing stories, but it's not often that we get to hear a story from a midwife who, you know, has clearly experience in obstetrics who then becomes that ICU patient. I mean, when did you, when did you think something might be going wrong with the pregnancy?
1: Honestly, I never really had that feeling. Um, I, so I had MoDi twins um and so i expected a lot of potential complications and i think i was so focused throughout the pregnancy on how are they growing you know do they have twin to twin <laughs> um right. you know just making sure that they were developing as they should um and they their growth was fantastic and at one point my maternal fetal medicine Physician told me. She said, "You know, these twins are acting like singletons. I mean, they're growing <laughs> great." <laughs> and so I remember we talked like this pregnancy is going so well. Like, what a surprise! <laughs> um, and so I never really felt that there was an issue um, until uh, I I started to have some contractions that were concerning for preterm labor. Um, around 31 weeks, and I was admitted for a short period of time for, you know, the typical course of um, steroids, and I was on magnesium. Um, Contraction stopped. I went home. Uh, At that point, I really, I don't know that I was thinking something was wrong, but I think that's when my husband started to know something was going on.
0: (laughs) What was he noticing?
1: So while I was in the hospital for those Four days, um, and then when I went home for about 24 hours, uh, he kept telling me that I was acting really strange, that I was kind of acting like I was drunk, um, and that I was I just didn't seem like myself. So apparently, I don't have this recollection, but apparently, I was um, super animated with the nurses, and you know which. I know them because I work there. Right. So to me, it wasn't unusual that I would be excited when they came into my room. Right. (laughs) Like, hey, so and so, you know, we're all friends, whatever. Um, But he's like, you're just so being so over the top. And I was getting really mad at him. I'm like, why are you questioning how I'm acting? (laughs) Do
2: you remember all of that?
1: I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Did you Um, think
2: it was just the mag that you were kind of slurring or is it, was it slurring your words or kind of you say acting drunk? What does that mean?
1: Yeah. So he did say I was slurring my words. He said that it seemed like I wasn't ever, not all the time it got worse, but initially seemed a little bit more sleepy. Um, And I had been working, I mean, I was working full time as a midwife, our practice was down a midwife um, who was out on medical leave. And so we were, I was just very busy. (laughs) And so I remember taking a lot of naps in the week or two leading up to this and coming home and not really wanting to eat dinner, I would just go to the couch fall asleep. Eventually, he would kind of tell me like, hey, let's go upstairs and sleep
0: <laughs> um, you were telling us about some other like you were having some other odd behavior in that time too that he was witnessing that you didn't think was odd at the time but in hindsight now you're horrified right yes
1: yeah so um, while initially um, so I had that period of time in the in the hospital for four days I was on magnesium whatnot my husband was concerned about how I was acting um, one of the nurses, after all of this happened, and I was back to work, she told me that there was a night when I was on mag that I was sitting at the bedside. And she came in because she saw that, you know, the tracing wasn't, the babies weren't on or whatever. And she said, I was sitting there. And she said, Amber, what are you doing? And I said, I'm peeing. And she's like, no, you're not. (laughs) And I said, Yeah, I just went to the bathroom. And she's like, your monitors haven't unplugged you you didn't go to the bathroom and I was like yeah I did and she's like okay and she said you I didn't pee myself you know but I just had I didn't know where what was going on
0: you were um, convinced you had gone up to the bathroom
1: yeah yeah I thought I'm like yes I did I don't why, <laughs> you know <laughs> um and I also remember trying to eat some grapes while I was there and I had to spit out the skin because I couldn't figure out how to use my muscles of my mouth to swallow it. And that wow. sounds so but at the time I thought that was hilarious. I'm like, isn't this so funny? Why
0: I can't even eat these
1: grapes? Like
0: um, but I think I, I could just, see I could see how as a bedside nurse you would easily attribute a lot of this stuff to magnesium. What do you think, mm-hmm. Suzanne?
2: Well, sure, you know, first off I'd be like, okay, she's getting up on mag. That scares me. <laughs> and then <laughs> the fact that you had such you were almost so sedated, you know. With you know, and that type of change in your mentation, though. I mean, it was that you weren't thinking clearly. And I get, I get too, you know. A, again, as a nurse, that I would think, well, that's probably the mag. And we always seem to go for the easiest thing to explain our uh, our patient symptoms away. Sometimes, anyway, and and I could see that would be very common to think that.
1: Yeah. And so at some point, my husband had expressed some concern that he felt like something wasn't right with me. Um, but he did kind of receive that answer several times, you know, it's she's magged out. Um, one of the nights they gave me ivy Benadryl to help me sleep because keeping twins on a monitor obviously um, doesn't make for a lot of rest. <laughs> um, and so then that was kind of used as a reasoning for why I was so tired and why I wasn't acting normal. Um, So eventually I think he kind of just sort of accepted that answer. Like, okay, several people have said that, you know, we're, we're going home today, whatever. Um, So I went home and we went to my favorite restaurant. I didn't eat anything. I don't really remember much of that. I, I, We went home, he noticed that my legs were starting to get really swollen, which again, I told him, you know, I'm 32 weeks pregnant with twins. Yeah, I have some edema (laughs) Um, and he's a paramedic. So he was, we have, you know, a manual blood pressure cuff at home and he would check my blood pressure, it was fine. And so I basically said, you know, just stop worrying about me, I'm fine. Um, But overnight, or I should say, so overnight, I slept like I had been. Um, The next day, I apparently texted a bunch of I have a I had an older son who was four at the time. Um, And I was texting his friend's parents saying, "Let everyone come over, we're going to set up the water slide in the backyard. Uh, And my husband is like, why are you inviting all these people over and
2: having <laughs> a party and you just got out of the hospital? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm like, let's, let's get together with some people. It's, you know, it was July, um, whatever. So <laughs> we did that and these people all come over and then he said, I just disappeared and he went to look for me and I had gone to the kitchen. I had gotten myself a glass of wine. I had taken it up to the tub and I was sitting in the tub with this glass of wine and my husband's like, what What are you doing up here? Like, you invited all these people over. Are you okay? And I said, oh, I'm just having contractions again. I'm just, you know, going to sit in the tub. I'm sure they'll go away. There's nothing worse than what I've had. And and that didn't turn into anything. And he's like, what's with the wine? And I'm like,
0: I don't know. I just figured that might help. <laughs> just- Not advice you're giving to your patients, I take it. No, it's not. (laughs) So Um, your husband clearly has some spidey sense. Yes. uh, That something is not going right, and Mm -hmm. he is not going to take no for an answer. I mean, but I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for him. I mean, he's, as a paramedic, he's got some medical background. But, Mm -hmm. you know, to be able to talk to an obstetric provider about an obstetric issue in a confident way, that's, I mean... That's tough. He's in a tough yeah. position because yeah. I'm sure he respects your knowledge about obstetrics. And so to have you saying, no, 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 everything's fine. You know, he, it, he has to, he's really got to listen to his instincts. It sounds like mm-hmm. he advocated for you a lot during this whole process. He
1: did. He is, he was a huge advocate for me, thankfully. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, later that night, I, he said, I went down to the couch. I was, he said, my eyes weren't really open. They were kind of, you know, half open. And I was just sort of moaning and writhing around on the couch, but not really responding to him. Because um, I was, you know, I just kept saying, I'm sleeping, leave me alone. And he eventually he said, you know, you need to text your doctor. Um, because again, this is my colleague. So you know, I have her cell phone. She's great. We She's been very responsive to anything during the pregnancy. And I remember several times trying to sort of form a text message to her and I couldn't figure out how to organize it. Like I didn't know what to even how to form a sentence or, (laughs) and I just kept falling asleep trying to write this text. So eventually he took my phone and texted her from it. And I think that also caused some confusion later because She didn't realize how out of it I was because she had just gotten this text from thinking it was me, it was Garrett, that had formed this, you know, cohesive text of here's the symptoms, here's what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Um, He took my blood pressure was a little bit elevated, like 150 over something. Um, And she said, you know, yeah, bring her in. Because he eventually just called her, and I was very mad. I said, "Why would you bother her? Why are you calling her? You know, she's not on today. Like, leave her alone. I'm fine." <laughs> um, but she, now we
0: already know that we already know the punchline here, and yeah. we announced at the beginning that you had fatty liver of pregnancy. Um, mm-hmm. But I just want to take a moment to really, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about your mental status changes and the issues that you you're with cognition and communication and stuff that have been going on for several quite a few days prior Mm -hmm. to this event that brings you into the hospital but you know for those of you who are not familiar with fatty liver or who have never managed a patient of fatty liver first of all we're not talking about the kind of fatty liver that you find incidentally on an ultrasound of a patient who is overweight or obese that's very common Um, we are talking about this is a a truly destructive process um, uh, in the liver that one of the hallmarks of is that you end up having very high ammonia levels and from the liver failure and those ammonia levels lead to mental status changes. So in hindsight, um, and I would not expect anybody to think to look to hear these symptoms and go, ah, she's got fatty liver, but I would expect an evaluation to figure out what's going on and that's causing your mental status changes. But in hindsight, this was probably evidence of rising ammonia levels that were impacting your mental status related to the fatty liver changes that were already happening.
2: Right. And I'm sure your husband, it's a great lesson for me because your husband persisted to say, but she's still not right. And so a lot of times we may hear the patient say what they're saying, but then if they're kind of out of it is the term you're using, you know, then what are they normally like? Because we don't live with you 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And we don't know you uh, be, as a patient. Now, your co-workers did, which was also, I'm sure, very helpful in figuring out, you know, something's going on. She's not quite the same. But listening to the family members is another very important uh, takeaway that I want us to to hear from your story.
0: So what happened when you got to
2: the hospital? He finally convinced
0: you to go, I take it.
1: Yes, he did. I was not happy about it, but begrudgingly, I (laughs) went to the hospital with him. Um, And at this point, I have very spotty memory of what happened. So I remember... um, I don't remember this, but I was told later that when I got there, um, they put the monitors on me and I took them off and I threw them at the nurse, which obviously alarm bells went off for them at that point of, you know, Amber obviously would want us to monitor her baby. She's not going to take the monitors off and throw them. Um, But I said, you know, that hurts. Don't touch me. Um, You know, I had some sunburn on my stomach because I had in my loopiness that day spent some time laying out in our kiddie pool in the backyard, <laughs> fell asleep, <laughs> didn't put enough sunscreen on. So, um, they also were kind of questioning, Does she have heat stroke? Because Garrett said, You know, she's been outside all day in the sun and didn't want to come in, you know, uh, prior to you know, inviting all of our friends over. <laughs> so, they, yeah, they knew something weird was going on. Um, and at that point, of course, um, drew labs on me. And that's where things became a little not super clear, but more clear. Um, So I remember my physician coming in the room and saying, you know, Amber, your LFTs are in the 300s. And my creatinine was 1.8. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, that's, and then she said something, you know, about we need to have these babies. And I, of course, agreed and said, yeah, do whatever you think we should do. And she said, I think we should go do a C-section. And so I so, had kind of of
0: Oh, go ahead. So this is typical. Okay. So preeclampsia help syndrome kind of is commonly associated with fatty liver pregnancy, but does not have to be associated with fatty liver pregnancy. And there's a lot of crossover, of course. Right. But the hallmark with fatty liver is that your LFTs are typically, you know, somewhere around five to 10 times the upper limit of normal. You don't you know, it. you would think that you would have LFTs in the many thousands, you know, in a patient with liver failure, but with fatty liver, it's typically, you know, in the several hundreds is, is common. That elevated creatinine is very typical as well, as is, now I'm going to talk first about the labs that we order commonly, because we're not ordering ammonia levels commonly in OB, but if you look, you've got elevated LFTs, um, elevated creatinine, low glucose, high white count, and I know your white count was pretty high. What was your, what do you remember?
1: Oh, uh, it was 32. Wow.
0: Yeah. And then some of the other ones that we might do low fibrinogen, now, of course that comes later as the liver fails, but, um, but yeah, it's not un- uncommon to see elevated liver functions that are not crazy, crazy, crazy high elevated creatinine. And then we think, oh, we've got preeclampsia or maybe help syndrome. Did you ever have low platelets? Do you know, or at least I did at not. this point,
1: at okay. this point, my platelets, I believe were 170 something. Um, And they stayed okay for, it looked like about 12 hours after I delivered.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So then they take you back for section and deliver your twins. And I want to say, I have to give... Uh, you know, kudos to the team for getting you delivered because um, delivery is what leads to recovery of whether this is a hypertensive disorder or fatty liver or whatever. But, you know, stillbirth rates are pretty high in this situation. It's not unusual for patients who present with fatty liver to be acidotic. And if you're acidotic, then baby is acidotic. And um, and so stillbirth is not rare, especially premature. So I'm glad that you've got uh, the baby's okay now. They're great. Yeah. Healthy yeah. boys. Boys. And of course yep. they're identical. They are, yeah. <laughs> a handful. I'm impressed you had time to do this podcast <laughs> with twins and a and another kiddo running around. Yeah. So, um, okay, so you get delivered and then what happens in the in the delivery? Yeah. So during the C section, um, I was
1: vomiting a lot, which again, you know, I'm on my back in 32 weeks. I had heartburn that had been terrible. Again, didn't really attribute that as a problem, because I'm thinking, just mechanically, I have a giant belly. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and I had been, I had had vomiting throughout my entire pregnancy. So I should say, I was also having nausea and vomiting in the days leading up to this, but that wasn't unnormal, you know, unusual for me. Um, so I remember throwing up and feeling really miserable, but ultimately, the babies were born. Um, baby B had meconium. And so I remember thinking that was unusual. Um, And then I remember hearing my physician ask, you know, for Arista at one point, and I said, I can hear you. And she's like, stop, just be the patient. (laughs) Um, So I mean, I, I suspect that maybe I was having a little bit more bleeding than what would be typical. But again, you know, Certainly, a lot of risk factors for bleeding, knowing that I had potentially preeclampsia or help, that I had a very stretched out uterus. <laughs> um, so, and I was on magnesium as well at this point. So, ultimately, um, looking at the operative note, my QBL was about a thousand. Um, and we did have, or do have at this hospital, um, a method for using QBL instead of EBL, which I think is good. Um, so we had like the Triton systems
0: and, you know, scanning labs. So when did, when did they, when did you, when did your DIC liver failure get recognized? How did that happen? So that happened once I moved to PACU. So my, yeah, my, all you PACU nurses out there pay attention here.
1: Yeah. So they moved me to PACU. Everything had been fine. I guess my first fundal check in the OR was normal. Um, And then my husband said the first fundal check they did in PACU was just a huge gush of bleeding. Um, He he said they measured it. It was about 400 um, just with one fundal check. And then I started throwing up again. And he said it was like a scene from The Exorcist, like they're pressing on my belly, blood's coming out, I'm throwing up. And it was very traumatic for him to see this. And the whole time... And this is
0: coming from a paramedic.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah who's, so, who's seen some blood and gore in his oh, day. Yeah, yeah, blood and gore doesn't bother him. But when it's his wife's blood, yes. obviously, different.
2: Completely different story when it's mm-hmm. one of ours, you know, mm-hmm. family members or your wife. That's, that's, I'm sure that was traumatic.
1: Yeah. So in that time, um, you know, they gave me all TXA and obviously more Pitocin um, Cytotec. I mean everything basically Um, and continue to have bleeding at some point uh, when once the physician so there was a physician who was there we have OB hospitalists that are present so she was in the room and did you know manual um, like just uterine exploration and that's another vision that I think my husband commonly will say he'll never forget is just her white coat you know being covered in blood for me and it was I'm sure quite a chaotic scene but the whole time again I'm out of it and I just kept saying I'm fine I'm fine <laughs> telling my husband like this is fine <laughs> um, so I was in the PACU for oh man so the babies were born at 9:30. probably got back there around 10 um, at about midnight my labs came back and showed evidence of DIC. So they didn't get a fibrinogen on that draw. I, after we talked, Stephanie, I had, I went back and looked at my records to see like, okay, what labs were retrieved? Um, so they had just done like a PT, PTT, INR. Everything was abnormal. Um, there was some suspicion for DIC at that point and they decided to take me
0: to the ICU. So, okay. So let me give a clinical perspective here. Yeah. So for those of, again, for those who have never, there's probably many listeners who have never seen a case of fatty liver because it is rare, but it is very well described. And typically what happens is that you have this kind of vague prodrome. It's pretty nonspecific, you know, nausea, maybe some belly pain, disorientation, you know, just nothing exciting to that that is to say, usually in hindsight, you recognize there's something going on. The labs really tell the story, but the DIC is not the result of hemorrhage. The hemorrhage is the result of DIC with fatty liver. So all the clotting factors are produced by the liver. And if the liver is not functioning, And that's what happens with fatty liver. It stops functioning. So it stops making clotting factors. And ultimately, you use up all of your clotting factors, especially if you just have surgery. The clotting factors that you have that are floating around are going to be used to deal with the surgery. Then they're going to be overwhelmed. And now you're in DIC, not because you've hemorrhaged and lost your clotting factors, but because you're not making your clotting factors. And the labs really tell the tale. By the time you have a PTPTT abnormal, your fibrinogen is less than 100. So I didn't need a fibrinogen level if your PTPTT are abnormal. So I know it's less than 100 at that point. The treatment is simple. It's complicated, but it's simple. Number one, get you delivered if you're not already delivered, and number two is do the functions of the liver until the liver recovers. The good news is it typically recovers. Um, The kidneys always don't, but the liver typically recovers. But that means you get flooded with massive amounts of blood products constantly for days until the liver actually comes out of it and starts doing what it's supposed to do. So at that point, you go into the ICU, I take it. And I'm sure the intensivists were thrilled to have a postpartum patient um, in the ICU. They probably were fighting over taking care of that patient because they're so happy to have. And they had nurses banging down the door to come take care of the (laughs) postpartum patient and the midwife
2: right? (laughs) I started to say the doctors don't get all that joy. Give it to some of the ICU nurses too, but I've also got to say kudos to your team for getting you to the ICU because, you know, they got you there before you were in hemorrhagic shock and things of that nature. So oftentimes we do wait too long to hold them in OB, but this is clearly you needed to be in ICU. Yeah. Tell us about what it was like in the ICU then once you got up there.
1: Yeah, so when I was transferred up there, um, they had ordered blood products, but I hadn't received any blood products yet. And at this point, my QBL was, um, per my husband's recollection, was a little bit over two thousand. Um, so when I so got at up- this
0: point, just to give some context here, I've not looked at your records. I have no idea, but if you've lost two liters, you're hypotensive and tachycardic period. That's just physiology there. So you're hypotensive and tachycardic until the tank gets filled. In this case, case, it needs to be with blood. So this would be clinically recognizable at this point. Yeah. So my
1: husband was told, you know, go down to the NICU, be with the babies. We're going to take Amber to the ICU. They said, you know, we're going to place a central line, start giving her blood products. Um, You know, we'll call you if something changes, but just go see your babies. So I think he was a little reluctant to leave me, but also probably happy to get away from that horror show. (laughs) Um, And so he was gone for several hours and came back up. And for me, I have the only memory I have of going to the ICU was being wheeled past the nurses station and kind of waving to them like, bye guys. (laughs) <laughs> um, you're, you're still thinking this is an amazing yeah earth, I'm just right? on like a fun <laughs> trip here um, I, I had some very vague understanding when but not I mean I wasn't afraid and I'm normally someone who can be an anxious person but I was just so relaxed <laughs> And um, the OB hospitalist told me you know Amber we're going to take you to the ICU and she said I just said that's just the F word that's it <laughs> so I knew something was Not good.
0: Something got through that ammonia brain.
1: Yeah, I was like, Oh, that's bad. Um, So I have no memory, though, of being up there initially. Um, From what I understand, it sounds like I was just pretty lethargic and just essentially responsive to pain, but not, you know, awake and alert by any means. Did you get Um, intubated? uh, Not yet. (laughs) So at that point, um, my husband came up, he Uh, It was about three in the morning at this point. Um, And so I'd been there for three hours or so. Um, And he kind of asked the nurse, you know, hey, I heard she was going to get a central line. I see she doesn't have one. Um, You know, what's happening with that? He didn't see any blood products being given to me at that time. And he questioned that as well. And she said, you know, well, the the doctor wants to recheck some labs and, um, you know, we're waiting for that. So he is like, okay, I'm a paramedic. I don't know. You know, you guys are the intensivist people. I'm going to lay down. And um, so he laid down on the couch and then was woken up about 20 minutes later to um, the phlebotomist was there drawing labs and she hit the code button on me um, because I had started having what looked to be a seizure. So in the facility I delivered, our rapid response is a 30-minute response, which is uh, not acceptable in my opinion. (laughs) Uh, That seems more like a standard response. Um, So they really don't use rapid response much. It's either if we need help now, we're doing a code button, but that's very confusing. So now people coming in are yelling, you know, does she have a pulse? Does she have a pulse? Yes, I had a pulse. Um, But, you know, it's just sort of, kind of fuzzies that picture of what does this person need from all these people that are flooding in from around the hospital.
0: We um, see this everywhere we go. This is a very everywhere. typical confusion scenario.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it, also in the yeah. ICU, you know, I, I think the ICU mentality is we can handle those rapid responses without having to call one and call anybody else in, you know, or come over and get into our unit and stuff like that. So I think that can be kind of common. We see it in OB all the time, obviously, uh, and not calling a lot of OB, RRTs or or RRTs, you know, housewide, but in the ICU, I think it's even more common.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, at that point, my blood pressure had bottomed out. And um, I, again, this is all just from my husband's recollection and looking at my records because I have don't remember any of this, Um, but they pushed Ativan, gave me a mag bolus. Um, Yeah. And what was the Ativan for? Because they thought I was seizing and that's what the ICU physician thought
0: was appropriate. Okay. So this is a really, really, really good point to kind of make a, this is a beautiful case because you're here to tell the story and everything ended well, but this is a really good demonstration about how the intensivist team, the intensive care team are typically fantastic at taking care of what they need to, what they know in their scope and what they're comfortable with. But when it comes to pregnancy and postpartum, they don't know what they don't know. So Ativan is not the drug of choice. If we think we're having an ecleptic seizure and, uh, and that would be the most likely scenario in, here. And there's also, a, you know, this, lack of understanding of just how massively pregnant and postpartum women can bleed. You know, our surgical intensivist colleagues tend to have a different kind of appreciation of it because they deal with more trauma and that kind of stuff. But really an obstetric patient who's bled or is bleeding is more like a trauma patient than a pulmonary intensivist patient. And so there tends to be a disconnection. We see this commonly. And so, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's unfortunate, but it's also not rare. So that the OB involvement, I want all of you OBs and MFMs out there listening and and all of you bedside nurses, uh, the involvement of the OB team doesn't end when the patient is delivered and goes to the ICU. The OB team really needs to be, this is, it's even more important because you understand the OB physiology and you understand the OB issues. So you can be advocating, no, the treatment is mag, no, the patient needs blood, um, or if she's on a vent, we need to target, you know, she's got an increased, you know, uh, tidal volume, et cetera, those kind of things that we can be advocating for that the intensivist team may not understand because they don't, they've never,
2: may never have been trained in it. Right. I mean, you've got acute fatty liver or preeclampsia or eclampsia that they're, you know, running through their mind at this point. And you're, you're thinking, you know, what do you do for a patient who may have this liver failure, uh, certainly giving them a med too that would be metabolized by the liver. You know that you're going to hold on to that med for quite a long time by giving somatavan too. So I have seen that in clinical practice and it is a go-to drug a lot of times for, you know, other scenarios, but somebody who has a some kind of liver issue, which you obviously did. And, uh, you know, giving an Ativan is going to hang on to it for quite a while. So your mentation is going to be a little bit off just because of that med. Mm-hmm. And they may yeah. not
0: even have recognized at this point that you had fatty liver. They It's very typical at this point that you're still being managed as preeclampsia with severe features, um, right. and now calling you eclamptic without recognizing and thinking that the DIC is related to the bleeding instead of the bleeding is related to the DIC is the yes, chicken or the egg true. thing. So that's very typical. And um, But Suzanne makes a great point. You know, you your LF, they did know the LFTs were in the hundreds, and so your liver is going to be impacted in some degree. But, you know, you've got renal function dysfunction as well. you got a creatinine of 1.8, potentially higher at this point. So MAG isn't so simple either, but um, that's why you're in an ICU.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so, so when did you finally get blood?
1: Um, so apparently I had received, and looking back in my records, While my husband was in the NICU, I received, it looks like two units of packed red cells, and I believe some amount of platelets. The documentation isn't super clear. And trying mm-hmm. to figure out, like, what exactly did I get?
2: Oh, you're kidding! Like, I'm so shocked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Reviewing charts, it's always hard to put those together with the EMR. It's mm-hmm. even worse. So yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, so,
2: so this, so let's get back
0: to the phlebotomist called the code. The team finally arrives. They figure out you have a pulse, and now the resuscitation begins.
1: Yeah, sort of. So, um, the focus was on the. That you know the magnesium was being given, my husband um, questioned very reasonably because I I mean I like to talk shop at home and so he understands a fair amount about OB, and he questioned the physician and just asked you know hey she's bleeding a lot is the magnesium a problem I know that's a smooth muscle relaxer fair question, um, and the physician said I've never heard that and then he said. Uh, are you going to call her OB? Are you going to call OB to come up here? And the physician said, no, I've got it. And so my husband was not happy with that answer. Um, His impression, and I think this is really where the team's communication with a family family member is so important, because his overall impression of this physician was that he seemed very kind of apathetic to what was going on. Um, And he felt like this person doesn't really seem like they care about what's happening with Amber or that they feel that it's, you know, anything severe or significant. Like there was no, he didn't feel like there was much concern. Um, and he felt differently. He felt like this seems bad. <laughs> um, so it's that
0: husband's spidey sense again. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I think this is a critical point where, I was very privileged that I worked there and that I knew people there. And so, and I have these people's phone numbers in my phone. And so my husband took my phone and texted the nurse who had been caring for me on labor and delivery and said, Hey, that, that code was for Amber and they're refusing to call OB. Like, will you please get someone up here? So that nurse alerted our OB hospitalist who came up, who then called my um, primary OB and then my primary will be called our MFM um, director and they all kind of came in and took over um, and had a very different feeling about what the management plan needed to be. And that was obviously resuscitation with blood products. Um, at that point, the idea was still that it was potentially eclampsia, not acute fatty liver. Um, but I did, you know, they continued to get labs on me and, My LFTs kept trending up. Um, I had, you know, fibrinogen less than 70, no clot. Uh, Just the DIC continued. Um, And so into the morning and the following day, I was super sick. Um, The OB hospitalist took my husband to the waiting room and said, you know, do you have anyone here with you? Because this is pre-COVID, so, you know, you can have visitors. (laughs) Um, And she said, does anyone, you know, who, who have you called here? And he said, you know, nobody, no one even knows that we had the babies. We were going to tell people, you know, once I was able to call and text people in recovery, and that obviously didn't happen. Um, And then he had just been sort of riding this wave of what's happening with Amber for, you know, several hours. Um, And she said, you know, your wife is very sick. I need you to call her mom, call her dad. You need to get people here. I don't know if she's going to make it till the morning. That's what she said to my
0: husband. And, oh, your poor husband. Yeah. I mean, I, let's just take a minute and take in what your husband just had to hear and had to go through. Mm-hmm. I, I, I imagine he still hears that conversation in his head today. He must yeah. be so traumatized by this whole experience.
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, and so, you know, he called everyone. And so now we have bunch of people in the waiting room um and he also called one of our friends who's a critical care nurse and she came down and she stayed at the bedside with me on and off for days um and I really appreciated her expertise um because some of the nurses that were assigned to me were um new brads one of them said she was just off orientation and um they were really busy and short staffed, which we know that, that story from all over the country, right? Staffing is huge. And so this nurse was really there advocating for me, like, Hey, when are you starting her next unit of blood? Like what's happening with her labs? Are you guys trying you know? And so there were a lot of things that she caught that then they were like, Oh yeah, that's, we should do that. That's a good idea.
2: (laughs) Um, I want want to say something real quick too, about the nursing and, you know, being a nurse and having done critical care and OB, I think that, you know, I always try to welcome others at the bedside. You know, I, we've set up a couple of OB ICUs and we always encourage family members to stay at the bedside to be not just advocates, but to tell us, you know, is this normal for this patient that so on and so forth. And I want to say to all the nurses that are listening, don't be, um, intimidated by that or, or, um, upset that a family member or friend is there questioning the care. I mean, you would have the same advocacy for yourself. And so I don't want people to get defensive when somebody says something like that, that we should, um, listen and answer questions. And and I know everybody is short-staffed right now, but but to really think about how we respond to that and not get defensive about it. So I'm glad that she was there to to help with that.
1: Yeah. And she said too, she's like, you know, I hated being that, that person, right? <laughs> she said, you know, you don't want to be the family member or the friend that's really, she's like, I, I, you know, she knows she's a nurse herself. Um, so she said, there were a lot of the nurses that she became friends with during this, you know, and they appreciated her, you know, not, she certainly wasn't trying to be, you know, aggressive, but just like you said, trying to advocate for her friend. Right. Um, So at some point here, the decision was made to intubate me. Um, I, that following day, um, there was some kind of disagreement between the obstetrics team and the intensivist team about why I was bleeding. So like you said, Stephanie, what's causing the DIC? Is it because I'm bleeding or am I bleeding because my liver is not working well? Um, So the intensivist team really felt that I had to have an active bleed somewhere and that that's why my DIC was not improving
0: and why I was still so hypotensive. Um, so let me make a point here. So what's happening at this point in the physician's mind is, we how many blood you've received a lot of blood at this point. I'm assuming. Yeah. So you've seen blood and blood products, yet they're not getting ahead on the DIC. So if you stopped the bleeding. You should be able to quickly replace blood products and clotting factors. And assuming that the body is continuing to make clotting factors, you're going to correct the DIC pretty quickly. So there's only two explanations for ongoing DIC in this scenario. One is you're bleeding and consuming, and the other is you're not making, or both. (laughs) (laughs) because again it becomes if you don't recognize that the liver is not working then you're going to continue to bleed you're going to bleed into your belly because you've just had an abdominal surgery and people will blame that as the primary cause and it's the secondary cause so it ultimately is going to end up coming back to the liver um but there's no hope of saving patients in this scenario if you don't flood them with clotting factors and blood products. That's the only, it's it's the bridge to allowing the liver to recover. Now, fortunately, these days with modern intensive care, mortality rates are fairly low for such a serious disease, probably on the order of 5% or less, but morbidity can be awful. So, you know, dialysis, renal function, you know, stroke, ARDS, lung injury, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of things that can happen as a result of that don't necessarily kill you, but hemorrhage, DIC and kidney problems are the things that end up taking women's lives in the setting of fatty liver. So it all comes down to blood products, blood products, blood products, blood products. So I'm assuming at some point they took you back to the operating room and probably found a belly full of blood. Yes.
1: So um, I was taken down um, with my OB and one of the trauma surgeons and they did an X-lap. Um, they took three liters of blood out of my belly, um, didn't find a bleeder, found lots of bleeding, just yes. oozing, you know, everywhere. But Right, because thing- with
0: DIC like this, where you literally have no clotting factors, mm-hmm. it's just going to ooze across any cut surface and not even doesn't even necessarily have to be a cut surface, but any, but you just had major abdominal surgery. c sections mm-hmm. is major abdominal surgery. You've got lots of injured surfaces there to bleed and there's nothing to stop it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they decided to leave me open, um, and they placed the wound vac. Um, and so that continued to just fill canisters and canisters of blood. Um, and so that was frequently being, You know, my dressings were frequently soaking through and, um, you know, I was oozing from my central line, oozing from my, um, dialysis port that they had placed. I mean, just, you know, everything is bleeding. Um, so at this point, my maternal fetal medicine specialist suggested the potential cause of acute fatty liver, um, my LFTs had increased to the 3000s at this point, um, I was jaundice, <laughs> I had ascites, you know, I mean, um, and I wasn't getting better, right? Like we would expect um, if it was help potentially. Um, and so the the argument continued, is she bleeding somewhere? They decided to take me for um, uterine artery embolization, even though my fundus was firm, I'm not having vaginal bleeding necessarily, that's concerning, but so I had this um, four-hour angiogram where they're looking at everything and they threw some coils in and but ultimately didn't find anything that seemed to be not unusual
0: not unusual um just in general embolization is a long procedure unstable I don't know what your clinical condition I'm not condimenting on whether it was right or wrong to do this with you I'm just saying Mm -hmm. This is a common approach. We can't figure out what's happening. Let's embolize. And um, unstable patients should never be taken down for embolization, but for all the reasons you just described. Um, But yes, fatty liver creates this kind of confusion and chaos because people don't necessarily recognize it's not the bleeding that's causing the DIC. It's the DIC that's causing the bleeding. And you get in this loop of constantly having to deal it. And this is why women die because it gets very, very challenging once you're down this, this pathway. How many units of blood did you ultimately get?
1: Um, over 50. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So at this point, um, I think is also where there, I think is a, uh, lesson for families experiences of something like this, not, um, in a, not in a way that was controllable. I don't, Think, but um, you know, my husband, of course, was feeling really frustrated now because we have every specialist in the hospital basically is, you know, following me, Um, and he's, you know, he's getting kind of just feeling like there's no hope because you know the intensivist is saying, okay, well, you know, we we can't we think there's bleeding somewhere. She's got to be bleeding. Ob is saying, you know, we think it's this acute fatty liver process general surgery is saying there's nothing else we can do ir says there's nothing else we can do we're going to defer back to general surgery general surgery says well we have nothing we're going to defer back to ir and at this point my husband you know flipped a chair over and punched a picture and uh was just feeling very like hopeless and frustrated like everyone's telling me that someone else it's someone else's problem to make her better. And he felt like no one,
0: no one knows how to do that. Um, And terrified. He mm must've been terrified. I mean, he's got two two babies in the intensive care unit, another kiddo at home, his wife in the intensive care unit that no one wants to take responsibility for from his perspective. And he's faced with the possibility of of losing you. I mean, that, that has to be terrifying.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we were super grateful for um, my primary OB and our MFM physician, were, um, you know, in contact with him via text and call constantly, um, always checking in on me. Any questions he had, they would immediately, like, just materialize at the bedside, like, what's going on? Um, So they were just a huge support. I don't think he – I think he would have been far more traumatized if it wasn't for them, and their very consistent updates and, like, making it clear that, like, they – were searching for answers and they were on top of it. Um, and they were you know fighting to make sure that I kept getting the blood products I needed and all of that. When, so
0: when did you first see your babies? Um,
1: so about a eight days after they were born, um, I was discharged from the ICU down to the mom baby floor. Um, and that was a huge, very emotional time for me even though I I didn't understand at that point how ill I had been I didn't realize that I had been on event I didn't know really anything that had happened I just knew that I didn't want to be in the ICU anymore (laughs) Um, and I was very upset as to why I my babies weren't with me and where are my babies and just you know confused like mama
0: bear give me my babies (laughs) Did they um, did they bring the babies into the NICU ever? I know they were premature, but how did that look? Yeah. So, yep, they were 32 weeks at birth, so they were in the NICU for about a month. Um, oh, I'm, I said NICU. I meant did they bring the babies to oh, you to, in the ICU yes. ever, yes. even though so, they were premature?
1: Yes. So there was one day while I was intubated that um, once they were feeling more confident that I didn't have an elevated white count and whatnot from an infection and that it would be safe to bring the babies up they brought them up and put them on my chest. And so I have lots of pictures and video of that and which I'm so glad that I have that, you know, even though it's not a memory for me, it's sort of that memory through other people. Um,
0: And we're going to, we're going to post with you've given us permission to post some of these pictures on our social media. So you'll be able to see, amber with her baby and her babies in the ICU it's really it's really powerful these images of seeing this it's very clear from these images you're critically ill and yet your babies are there and were you able to breastfeed
1: yeah so the nurses um again i was very lucky to have my work family here So they made a schedule that they kept in my room and on L and D and they were rotating everyone on every shift would come up every three hours and someone was pumping me. Um, And (laughs) yeah,
2: that's so great. I mean, so many women don't have that. And I, I said something about that on social media recently and some of the ICU providers kind of said that is cruel. You should never pump somebody when they're in the ICU. And, You know, and I said, uh, says no mother ever that wants to breastfeed. (laughs) Yes.
1: And they knew, I mean, they knew I would want to breastfeed. And so I was so grateful that they did that. Um, Even though at the time, and especially after I was extubated and I was a little bit more feisty, (laughs) um, there were times that I would try to kind of fight people off just because I didn't know what was happening. Um, I thought I was in some sort of, you know, torturous situation and people were trying to kill me or you know, I remember getting like, um, there were I am, you know, sedatives and things they were giving me and I remember those shots and thinking like, that was the poison, they just gave me poison, I'm, you know, they're trying to kill me. And so I had, it was just unreal how vivid those hallucinations were and still are even two plus years later, that I can remember them like it's happening now. And um, But so there were times when I would fight them off a little bit with pumping, but thankfully I was very weak. So my fighting was pretty pathetic.
0: (laughs) Um, So yeah, I was able to breastfeed them. That's amazing. I mean, I'm no psychiatrist, but this sounds like PTSD to me and it would not surprise me in the least that any patient, you know, much less someone who's just given birth to twins prematurely. Um, And their family would have, you know, traumatic memories from that experience. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, people might say, well, but you're fine. And the babies are fine. Just move on, get over it. But this is, you know, these are real experiences that it's sometimes takes therapy to get past. But Mm -hmm. and then, you know, some women decide to get pregnant again. And that's a huge trigger for more trauma and fear and anxiety is it going to happen again. And yes, it can happen again. Um, mm-hmm. Fatty liver does come come back. once one of the risk factors of having it before, but any kind of critical illness, you know, if you survive it and then during pregnancy and then get pregnant again, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's huge. Or we talk to women all the time who choose not to get pregnant again because of their experience being a critically ill patient. Or they and then, and then there's, I mean this is so complex, but then there's the grief of the lost normal pregnancy birth experience that you had, you know, visualized, that every woman visualizes for themselves.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So thankfully I I recovered, I think, fairly quickly after um, you know, my liver enzymes trended down and I was getting better. And so I remember being on the mom baby floor back with people that I knew, which really helped with the hallucinations because it wasn't strangers. Right. Um, I did have a sitter for a couple of well, that. And your ammonia <laughs>
0: levels were getting better.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a sitter and I would have to kind of ask her like, Hey, is there someone sitting over there? And she'd be like, no. I'm like, okay, thanks. She probably was getting so annoyed with me. I didn't sleep for like three nights. I was just like, hey, do you see that? Do you see that? And she'd say, no. But she would indulge me. Like, I'd be like, I know this sounds stupid, but will you just walk me to the window so I can see if my doctor is sitting in a hot tub out there? <laughs> and she's I'm like, because I think I hear her voice and she's in a hot tub.
2: <laughs>
1: um, oh, wow. So, but yeah, I remember seeing myself for the first time in the mirror and thinking, like, who is, whose body is that? Because I was completely jaundiced covered in bruises. Um, you know, my eyes were yellow. I, I my abdomen was, you know, stapled shut, uh, vertically. And it just, it was very jarring. Like, oh my gosh, what happened to me? Um, but yeah, I was able to leave the hospital about a week later and, um, I'm perfectly fine
2: now. So very grateful. That's amazing. Amazing. Well, I, we were just going to ask, what do you want our audience to learn from your story? Uh, if you could kind of pick some points, what what would you want them to hear from you as a patient who had delivered and then been critically ill and gone to a, an adult ICU?
1: Yeah, I think the importance of just listening to family members and um, just like you guys mentioned earlier, right? We know a lot as providers and people that work in the space, but we don't know this person the way that their family does or their partner does. Um, So there's always, I think, things to be learned from them. Um, And then also that really critical link between OB and ICU and how do we work together um, and collaboratively and not having it be a, a turf situation of like, this is my patient now um, you know, we really, I think that shows, I think I would have had a potentially a very different outcome if um, OB wasn't as involved as they were.
0: This has been incredibly powerful. And I am I know our listeners are going to be um, grateful for you sharing your story with them and giving kind of a really unique perspective as to what it's like to be a critically ill pregnant postpartum patient. We really. Thank you so much for being on, on the podcast and sharing your story, Amber.
2: Yes, thank you so much. Uh, I I know I learned so much from patients and I've learned from you today and I appreciate you sharing with our audience.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I want to thank everybody for listening today. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at CriticalCareOB. Email us or send a direct message for suggestions on future podcasts. And for a list of references on today's topic, go to the read app, qxmd.com apps, or our website. This podcast and music was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please reach out to nashvillepodcast at gmail.com. Once again, that is nashvillepodcast at gmail.com.